0: This is Medieval Death Trip for Monday, May 25th, 2020, episode 81, concerning more descriptions of the plague. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Let me indulge in what has been a media cliche for the past couple of months and open with the observation that the old, allegedly Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times, applies to these pandemic days with a particular piquancy. About the same time I was recording our previous episode, the Boccaccio episode, uh, back in mid March during our spring break, Our college announced that spring break was going to be extended an extra week, uh, and that all on campus and residential services would be closing, and that all classes were going to convert to an online format for the remainder of the semester. When they announced that, it was still early enough in the emerging lockdown here in America that it was sort of surprising. It was something that some schools had done uh, at that point, but I don't think most of the faculty here were exactly expecting it to happen. Uh, here in a small town on the Mississippi River. Just a couple of weeks after that, looking out on a changed world, what seemed surprising was that we ever thought that the semester might have continued more or less as normal. So yes, these are interesting times. Here in late May, uh, in America at least, the feeling is that maybe we're getting a little bit bored of these interesting times. We're losing our interest in COVID-19, perhaps at our peril, Uh, but certainly the novelty of quarantine life has worn off. I kind of fear that unlike in February and March, right now people uh, perhaps aren't all that interested in hearing more about plague, contemporary or medieval. Well... Too bad. Uh, My own interesting times involved transitioning all of my classes over to uh, online ghosts of themselves um, and the scramble to transform those courses and get the momentum up again after two weeks off and everything else pretty much forestalled podcast production for the remainder of the term uh, as the time since our Boccaccio episode uh, bears witness to. But now that the semester's over, I'm hopefully solidly back for the summer and might be able to get things onto a more or less regular schedule for at least the next three months. That said, I do have a small backlog of thoroughly plague-themed material that I'd been working on from April uh, that I'm not going to chuck away just because the pandemic has perhaps become a bit passé. But before we get to that, a quick note on that interesting times cliché. As I mentioned, uh, May You Live in Interesting Times is often presented as a, quote, Old Chinese Curse, end quote. Um, But as near as anyone who's researched the issue has found, this phrase appears to originate with the British diplomatic corps in the early 20th century, who ascribed it to China, though no actual Chinese proverb, much less curse, matches it. Uh, According to the website Quote Investigator, which has an impressively comprehensive article on the phrase... The nearest genuine Chinese candidate is an axiom that goes, far better to be a dog in days of peace than to be a human in times of war. So that conveys the general idea that peace and stability are preferable to war and chaos, but doesn't really capture the less purely positive or negative notion of interesting times. Uh, Indeed, that word interesting is a bit of a red flag for me, uh, since it seems like one that probably doesn't translate well. Um, I don't know any Chinese, Mandarin, or otherwise, but glancing at Google Translate's options for translations of interesting into Chinese parentheses traditional, the proposed synonyms that show up mean uh, variously amusing, honored, energetic, and, interestingly, good-looking, So I suspect I'm right that the broad, multivalent connotations of interesting times in English are not easily translatable. Uh, By the way, interesting itself is a relatively late arrival into English, coming into use only in the 18th century. Uh, Though when it arrives, it does quite quickly attain its current meaning of exciting interest, rousing curiosity, engaging attention. Uh, Which is surprising because in the 14, 15, and 1600s, Interest, both as a noun and a verb, was much more closely tied to the sense of having a stake in something, as in a business interest. Interest meant something that concerned you, or or something in which you were concerned, especially in relation to property or profit. It also carried some sense of the French usage, which related to injury done to one or compensation for injuries, which appears to be where interest, as in interest paid on a loan, comes from. Uh, It seems to come in as a financial term of art in the 13th century to distinguish interest from usury. Usury, charging a fee for the use of money, was prohibited by canon law. Uh, But interest could legally be collected as a form of compensation for the injury done to the creditor by a debtor who hadn't repaid the principal. And this wasn't quite our modern sense of interest, uh, and originally it was more likely to be a fixed sum rather than a percentage, for example. Um, But this is where, eventually, our current financial sense of interest on a loan comes from. The other meanings of interest that we have, those tied to the idea of a mental state, a state of attention, Uh, so the noun interest as in, you have my interest, and the verb interest as in, you interest me. These also appear around the same time as interesting, in the 1700s. In the Oxford English Dictionary, I also found another meaning that I hadn't heard before, though it apparently shows up in 19th century novels, including Nicholas Nickleby and Vanity Fair. And this is the phrase, to be in an interesting condition or interesting state. This was a euphemism for, any guesses? It's for being pregnant, The Dickens quote that the OED cites is, Mrs. Linville, who, as has been before hinted, was in an interesting state. Uh, And another quotation describes a woman, quote, becoming interesting, which is, uh, well, wow. Still, I think it might be a fun euphemism to revive for our modern age of Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook pregnancies. Um, It certainly would put a different spin on the old Chinese curse, uh, if nothing else. But before this interesting etymological aside causes you to lose interest in this episode, uh, let's shift our attention over to our text for today, Uh, a little grab bag of further plague texts. Another consequence of pandemic conditions is that interlibrary loan has shut down for my college's library network. Um, In fact, it got shut down literally a few days after I'd put in a bunch of requests uh, way back in March for some more plague books. And all those requests got canceled on me, so I haven't been able to flesh out the context for these items uh, remotely as much as I'd like to have done. So we'll just have to let them mostly speak for themselves, uh, and that's okay. We'll start with a very brief item that indeed speaks well enough for itself that it doesn't even need translation, uh, at least not beyond a little bit of modernizing polish. This is the Chronicle of John Capgrave, uh, not an eyewitness to the Black Death of 1348. Uh, Capgrave was born in 1393 and is probably writing his chronicle in the 1440s or 50s, so a hundred years after the Black Death. But it's a nice example of the kind of rather laconic descriptions of the plague that we often get in chronicles and annals. Um, plus, I like it because it's late Middle English and we can hear it as it's written, uh, albeit in modern pronunciation. So here it is, Capgrave's brief account of the plague years. Um, The 22nd year that he refers to at the start of this item is a measurement of how far into the reign of King Edward III we are, uh, a typical mode of chronology in medieval chronicles. In the 22nd year were great rains which dured from the nativity of St. John Baptist unto Christmas. And after that rain, there followed a great pestilence, especially in the east side of the world amongst the Saracens. So many died that there left scarcely among them the tenth man or the tenth woman. They, seeing this vengeance amongst them, proposed variously to be Christian. But when they wist that the pestilence was among the Christian men, then their good purpose ceased. In the twenty-third year was the great pestilence of people. First it began in the north country, then in the south, and so forth throughout all the realm. After this ravages pestilence followed a murrain of beasts which had never be seen. For, as it was supposed, there left not in England the ten part of the people. Then ceased lords' rents, priests' tithes. Because there were so few tillmen, the earth lay untilled. So much misery was in the land that the prosperity, which was before, was never recured. And that's it. You can see why Boccaccio is so often quoted for descriptions of the Black Death. The histories seldom offer an on-the-ground perspective. Another point about the annals, uh, Capgrave is not the only historian to emphasize that the pestilence among the people in 1348 was accompanied by an epidemic of animal disease, a great murin, uh, which is a medieval term like pestilence that covers any kind of infectious disease that kills cattle or sheep. And these are frequently noted in Chronicles because they so often lead to famine or economic disaster for whole regions. But it is interesting that medieval people perceived this distinction between animal plagues and human plagues, that whatever theory of disease one was using, uh, miasmic vapors and malaria or divine judgment, um, they recognized that these did not affect all life equally, uh, an insight that comes from direct observation of how infections usually move through species. Uh, We might remember Boccaccio using the highly dubious anecdote of the pigs dying immediately after sniffing around an infected person's clothing as a sign of just how unprecedented this infectiousness of the Black Death was. Now, realistically speaking, uh, if the anecdote about the pigs is true at all and not just fantasy, uh, I would suspect that the pigs died from poisoning Because of some substance rubbed into the clothing, uh, perhaps some noxious and apparently unsuccessful plague cure. Recalling Boccaccio gives us a reasonable segue to our next text, uh, another contemporary account of the great mortality, Uh, indeed that of another Italian literary great, Francesco Petrarca, or Petrarch. I have a few selections from the letters of Petrarch to share with you that address the plague. These come from translations that rather freely paraphrase and condense the text. Uh, A more complete edition of Petrarch's letters was one of my interlibrary loan requests that never arrived. So we'll have to go with these slightly compromised versions, alas. Um, But still, they paint a vivid picture. uh, Perhaps not as concretely detailed as Boccaccio's, but filled with more immediate personal emotion. In June of 1348... Petrarch wrote this letter to his brother Gerardo, who was a Carthusian monk at Monriou. This translation is by Francis Aidan Gasquet. <laughs> My brother, my brother, my brother. A new beginning to a letter, though used by Marcus Tullius 1400 years ago. Alas, my beloved brother, what shall I say? How shall I begin? Whither shall I turn? On all sides is sorrow, everywhere is fear. I would, my brother, that I had never been born, or at least had died before these times. How will posterity believe that there has been a time when, without the lightnings of heaven or the fires of earth, without wars or other visible slaughter, not this or that part of the earth, but well nigh the whole globe has remained without inhabitants? When has any such thing been ever heard or seen? In what annals has it been read that houses were left vacant, cities deserted, the country neglected, the fields too small for the dead? and a fearful and universal solitude over the whole earth. Consult your historians. They are silent. Question your doctors. They are dumb. Seek an answer from your philosophers. They shrug their shoulders and frown, and with their fingers to their lips bid you be silent. Will posterity ever believe these things when we who see can scarcely credit them? We should think we were dreaming if we did not with our eyes, when we walked abroad, see the city in mourning with funerals, and returning to our home, find it empty, and thus know that what we lament is real. O happy people of the future who have not known these miseries, and perchance will class our testimony with the fables, we have indeed deserved these punishments, and even greater, but our forefathers also have deserved them, and may our posterity not also merit the same. But, whatever the causes and however hidden, the effects are manifest. To turn from public to private sorrows, the first part of the second year is past since I returned to Italy. I do not ask you to look back any further. Count these few days and think what we were and what we are. Where are now our pleasant friends? Where the loved faces? Where their cheering words? where their sweet and gentle conversation. We were surrounded by a crowd of intimates. Now we are almost alone. Petrarch also wrote to his brother to relate to him a story recounted to Petrarch by two traveling Carthusians about what that same brother had endured during the plague. It's a bit of an odd thing to do, to narrate in detail to a person what you've heard had happened to that person, Um, but that's what Petrarch does here. Uh, Maybe it has something to do with the quasi-public nature of many of Petrarch's letters, or maybe he's looking for confirmation of this rather remarkable tale Uh, Or maybe it's all made clear in the complete text of the letter, which I couldn't get my hands on. But here is the traveling Carthusians' gossip, as translated by Susan Dobson. The plague having got into the monastery of Montreux, the Prior, a man of exemplary piety but seized with terror, told his monks that flight was the only part they had to take. Gerard answered with courage, "'Go where you please. "'As to myself, I will remain in the situation in which heaven has fixed me.' "'The Prior redoubled his instances, and to alarm him, said, "'When you are dead, there will be no person to bury you.' "'That is the last of my cares,' said Gerard, "'and the affair of my survivors rather than mine.' "'The Prior fled to his own country, where death followed and struck him. "'Gerard remained in his convent.' where the plague respected and left him only, after having destroyed in a few days thirty-four of his brethren who continued with him. Gerard paid them every service, received their last sighs, washed their bodies, and buried them when death had taken those destined to this office. With only a dog left for his companion, he watched at night to guard the house and took his repose in the day. The thieves with which this country is infested Came several times to pillage this monastery, but he found some means to get rid of them. When the summer was past, he sent to a neighboring monastery of the Carthusians to beg they would give him a monk to take care of the house, and he went himself to the superior monastery of the Carthusians, where he was received with singular distinction by eighty-three priors and obtained of them a great favor. They permitted him to choose a prior and monks to renew his house from the different convents of the order, and he returned triumphant which he merited by his care, fidelity, and prudence. So, I've mentioned in the past that in high school, I began writing a story about a monk left the sole survivor of his monastery during the plague. And when I revisited that premise in college and once again in graduate school, I changed it because it seemed to me too unrealistic to have a single sole survivor like that. It felt like sensationalizing the Black Death beyond what ought to be horrific enough within its historical dimensions of mortality. Well, truth is stranger than fiction, I suppose. One last bit of Petrarch for us comes from a letter of 1349 to a friend he called by the pen name Socrates, a person later scholars have determined to have been Ludwig Heiligann, a Flemish Benedictine living in Avignon. Here's the opening of that letter, again translated by Susan Dobson. Has any annals since the destruction of Troy shown such terror and desolation as we now behold? Lands abandoned, cities depopulated, fields covered with dead bodies, the whole earth almost become one vast desert. Ask the historians, they say nothing. Consult the physicians, they are astonished and confounded. Address the philosophers, they shrug up their shoulders, knit their brows, and put their finger on their lips. Our streets, heaped up with dead bodies, resemble a charnel house rather than a city. And we are amazed when we re-enter our houses to find anything remaining that is dear to us. Happy, thrice happy, the future age, which will, perhaps, look upon our calamities as a series of fables." In the most bloody war, there is some resource, and an honorable death is a great consolation. But here, we have none. And is it true, as some philosophers have advanced, that God has no concern for what passes on the earth? Let us cast far from us so senseless an opinion. If he has not, how could the world subsist? Some philosophers have given this care to nature— Seneca justly views such as ungrateful men who would hide, under a borrowed name, the benefits of the supreme cause, and, by an impious subtlety, tempt men to deprive him of his just homage. Yes, great God, thou carest for us, we cannot doubt it, but how impenetrable are thy judgments! If we are punished more than others, we are no doubt more culpable." Perhaps thou wouldst prove, thou wouldst purify us, and render us more deserving of thy benefits. But how little do we know? There may be other causes of evil to which our weak intelligence cannot arrive. Alas, my dear Socrates, we have outlived our friends, and almost outlived ourselves. So one thing we learn about Petrarch here uh, is that he's not above reusing a good bit of rhetoric uh, in letters to different people, but I think we've all been there. This letter to Socrates arrived in Avignon at the same time that a great surgeon was hard at work in the city, on the front line battling the plague, with keen observations, uh, but only limited biological theory to help him. This is the physician Guy de Chalyac, Guy tells us that he himself contracted and survived bubonic plague, which certainly adds some special authority to his account. This account is included in his 1361 medical masterpiece, the Chirurgia Magna, or The Great Surgery, or we might say, The Big Book of Surgery. Uh, At well over 400 pages, the treatise earns its name. It was widely translated in the Middle Ages, uh, including into Middle English, um, at least a big chunk of it. It was also widely plagiarized uh, to the degree that that term means anything in manuscript production in the late Middle Ages. We'll be hearing a modern translation of Guy's description of the plague from the original Latin text, uh, which I've amalgamated from two differently incomplete translations of the passage, uh, one by Anna M. Campbell and the other by William A. Guy. Again, these are translations that seem to liberally make use of paraphrase and summary and elision, uh, rather than being straight translations, which is why I've combined the two to try to include as many details as I can. Um, But just bear in mind, this text is a bit of a Frankenstein of verbatim translation from Guy de Chalillac and bits of interstitial paraphrase from the translators. But it will sound like a medieval medical text, uh, so that's good enough for quarantine living. The great mortality appeared at Avignon in January 1348, when I was in the service of Pope Clement VI. It was of two kinds. The first lasted two months, with continued fever and spitting of blood, and people died of it in three days. The second was all the rest of the time, also with continuous fever and with tumors in the external parts, chiefly the armpits and groin, and people died in five days. It was so contagious, especially that accompanied by spitting of blood, that not only by staying together, but even by looking at one another, people caught it, with the result that men died without attendants and were buried without priests. The father did not visit his son, nor the son his father. Charity was dead and hope crushed. I call it great because it covered the whole world, or lacked little of doing so. For it began in the east, and thus casting its darts against the world, passed through our region toward the west. It was so great that it left scarcely a fourth part of the people. And I say that it was such that its like has never been heard tell of before. Of the pestilences in the past that we read of, none was so great as this. For those covered only one region, this the whole world. Those could be treated in some way, this in none." For this reason, it was useless and shameful for the doctors, the more so as they dared not visit the sick for fear of being infected. And when they did visit them, they did hardly anything for them and were paid nothing, for all the sick died except some few at the last who escaped the buboes being ripened. For preservation, there was nothing better than flight. Aloetic pills, letting of blood, purification of the air by fire... Comforting the heart by thoriacal apples and things of good odor, consoling the humors by bowl arminiac, and resisting putrefaction by acid things were recommended as preservatives. For the cure, bleeding and evacuations, electuaries and cordial syrups, figs and cooked onions mixed with plantain and butter to ripen the swellings, followed by incisions of the usual treatment of open sores. The carbuncles to be cupped, scarified, and cauterized. Many were in doubt about the cause of this great mortality. In some places, they thought the Jews had poisoned the world, and so they killed them. In others, that it was the poor deformed, and they drove them out. In others, that it was the nobles, and they feared to go abroad. Finally, they reached the point where they kept guards in the cities and villages and permitted the entry of no one who was not well known. And if powders or unguents were found on anyone, the owners, for fear that they were poisons, were forced to swallow them. And I, to avoid infamy, dared not absent myself, but with continual fear preserved myself as best I could by means of the above-mentioned remedies. Notwithstanding this, toward the end of the mortality, I fell into a continuous fever with a tumor in the groin. I was ill for nearly six weeks and was in such great danger that all my associates thought that I would die. But the tumor being ripened and treated as I have said, I escaped by the will of God. So, Guy acquires his immunity rather too late to do him much good in the initial outbreak, uh, but it puts him in good shape to bring his arsenal of remedies to the victims of the recurrences of bubonic plague that continued to erupt in Europe throughout the next few decades. And because I just can't stop myself, it's a condition acquired through higher education, here's another little etymological note. There were probably a few unfamiliar words for you in that selection, I'm guessing, Uh, One that was unknown to me was theriacal uh, in the phrase theriacal apples, which Guy tells us were tried out as remedies. Uh, Actually, the text from William A. Guy has k apples with a Y at the end instead of an L, but I'm pretty sure that's a printing error in this book from 1870. Uh, Theriacal simply means medicinal, uh, originally with a specific sense of being an antidote to venom. It comes into English via Latin, which took it from Greek, and actually, though there are some medieval occurrences of it in slightly different forms, it seems to really take off in English in the 17th and 18th century uh, in the wave of Enlightenment inkhorn terms, so it's probably just as fair to say we take it straight from the Greek. Uh, And incidentally, despite the similarity of the first syllables, uh, this word is unrelated to therapy and therapeutic. Uh, in fact, in Greek, those first syllables have completely different vowels, uh, eta versus epsilon. Uh, but that's not what I found interesting about this word. The bit of trivia here is that the noun form of this word, theriac, undergoes a little medieval mutation. Or more accurately, it starts mutating in the Romance languages and then English borrows it in one form uh, and then later reestablishes the theriac spelling. Um, to better conform with its classical roots. Uh, But what is that earlier medieval version? Well, compress those syllables a little bit, swap out the Greek TH for a simple Latin T, and you get treacle. In modern usage, we think of treacle as a sweet syrup. Molasses is a form of treacle. But to a Middle English or even early modern English speaker, treacle meant medicine. Indeed, it often meant anti-venom. Uh, well, I mean, not real anti-venom, uh, but a curative for a venomous bite. A lot of these treacles were made from plant resins, like balsam, uh, which also is the root of our word balm. And indeed, the Coverdale Bible of 1535 actually has treacle of Gilead in place of balm of Gilead. But that shows us how treacle comes to be thought of as an ingredient in holiday baking. Harvesting resin from evergreens and turning it into a medicinal balm or syrup is similar to what happens with sugarcane. And by the 1800s, the medicinal sense of treacle had almost been entirely supplanted by the sugar syrup meaning. Uh, I'm guessing that's because molasses was such a huge economic staple of the colonial triangular trade of sugar, rum, and slaves, and resin-based balms were perhaps no longer as widespread. What this all means is that Guy de Chalyac's theriacal apples are just one linguistic step away from actually being, basically, candy apples. Well, whereas Guy de Chalyac represented the best of the ranks of medieval frontline healthcare workers, we'll end on a text that does not put medieval physicians in quite as honorable a light. This is a statement issued by the Faculty of the College of Physicians of Paris, It's essentially their equivalent to CDC guidelines, uh, covering their theory of how the disease spreads and how best to avoid it. It does not exactly instill confidence in their medical skills. Here's the statement as translated by B.G. Babbington. members of the College of Physicians of Paris have, after mature consideration and consultation on the present mortality, collected the advice of our old masters in the art and intend to make known the causes of this pestilence, more clearly than could be done according to the rules and principles of astrology and natural science. We, therefore, declare as follows. It is known that in India and the vicinity of the Great Sea, the constellations which combated the rays of the sun and the warmth of the heavenly fire, exerted their power especially against that sea, and struggled violently with its waters. Hence, vapors often originate which envelop the sun, and convert his light into darkness. These vapors alternately rose and fell for twenty-eight days, but at last, sun and fire acted so powerfully upon the sea, that they attracted a great portion of it to themselves, and the waters of the ocean arose in the form of vapor. Thereby, the waters were, in some parts, so corrupted that the fish which they contained died. These corrupted waters, however, the heat of the sun could not consume, neither could other wholesome water, hail or snow and dew, originate therefrom. On the contrary, this vapor spread itself through the air in many places on the earth and enveloped them in fog. Such was the case all over Arabia, in part of India, in Crete, in the plains and valleys of Macedonia, in Hungary, Albania, and Sicily. Should the same thing occur in Sardinia, not a man will be left alive, and the like will continue so long as the sun remains in the sign of Leo, on all the islands and adjoining countries to which this corrupted sea wind extends, or has already extended from India. If the inhabitants of those parts do not employ and adhere to the following, or similar means and precepts, we announce to them inevitable death, except the grace of Christ preserve their lives. We are of opinion that the constellations, with the aid of nature, strive, by virtue of their divine might, to protect and heal the human race, and to this end, in union with the rays of the sun, acting through the power of fire, endeavor to break through the mist. Accordingly, within the next ten days, and until the seventeenth of the ensuing month of July, this mist will be converted into a stinking deleterious rain, whereby the air will be much purified. Now, as soon as this rain shall announce itself, by thunder or hail, every one of you should protect himself from the air, and as well before as after the rain, kindle a large fire of vine wood, green laurel, or other greenwood. Wormwood and chamomile should also be burnt in great quantity in the marketplaces, in other densely inhabited localities, and in the houses. Until the earth is again completely dry, and for three days afterwards, No one ought to go abroad in the fields. During this time, the diet should be simple, and people should be cautious in avoiding exposure in the cool of the evening, at night, and in the morning. Poultry and waterfowl, young pork, old beef, and fat meat in general should not be eaten, but on the contrary, meat of a proper age, of a warm and dry, but on no account of a heating and exciting nature." Broth should be taken, seasoned with ground pepper, ginger, and cloves, especially by those who are accustomed to live temperately and are yet choice in their diet. Sleep in the daytime is detrimental. It should be taken at night, until sunrise, or somewhat longer. At breakfast, one should drink little. Supper should be taken an hour before sunset, when more may be drunk than in the morning. Clear light wine, mixed with a fifth or sixth part of water, should be used as a beverage. Dried or fresh fruits with wine are not injurious, but highly so without it. Beetroot and other vegetables, whether eaten pickled or fresh, are hurtful. On the contrary, spicy pot herbs as sage or rosemary are wholesome. Cold, moist, watery food is, in general, prejudicial. Going out at night and even until three o'clock in the morning is dangerous on account of the dew. Only small river fish should be used. Too much exercise is hurtful. The body should be kept warmer than usual and thus protected from moisture and cold. Rainwater must not be employed in cooking, and everyone should guard against exposure to wet weather. If it rain, a little fine treacle should be taken after dinner. Fat people should not sit in the sunshine. Good clear wine should be selected and drunk often, but in small quantities by day. Olive oil, as an article of food, is fatal. Equally injurious are fasting and excessive abstemiousness, anxiety of mind, anger, and immoderate drinking. Young people, in autumn especially, must abstain from all these things if they do not wish to run a risk of dying of dysentery. In order to keep the body properly open, an enema or some other simple means should be employed when necessary. Bathing is injurious. Men must preserve chastity as they value their lives. Everyone should impress this on his recollection, but especially those who reside on the coast or upon an island into which the noxious wind has penetrated. So there's your quarantine diet, ready to implement until our constellations improve. As for myself, I've cooked with olive oil on no less than four occasions in the last week alone. So I guess that's the end of me. I really wanted to do more shows, but what can you do? I mean, I guess maybe I can save myself by avoiding exercise and sleeping in in the morning with. Moderate consumption of a little clear wine, uh, especially whenever I eat fruit. Well, if I make it through all this, I'll be back with one more plague-related text in a couple of weeks. Oh, but before we end this episode, I do have a riddle for you. This riddle comes from the Old English Dialogue of Adrian and Rithius, which features an exchange of riddles and other puzzling questions. So our question for today is, tell me. What shunneth the sick man that he loved while in health? So take a moment, pause the show if you like. Okay, well, the physicians of Paris almost steer us to the answer with some of their guidelines. Uh, The answer given in this text is, I tell thee, to the sick man is the meat hateful that he loved before, and to his eyes is the light hateful, which to him before was dear. Uh, it's a very literal riddle. Uh, there's no metaphor to it. Uh, indeed, it feels a little more proverbial or gnomic than riddle-like. But hey, it was a medieval sickness riddle, uh, so at least it scores on topicality, right? Oh, and just for fun. Well, fun and authenticity. And hey, what's more fun than authenticity? Here's the riddle in Old English. Say I may. What on shoneth se sekoman, the he er yason lovode? the sedja, thum sekoman bith meta lath thehim er was leof, on tis Iom leot lath the eror was leof. And that brings us to the end. You can get bibliographic notes for this and every episode on our website, medievaldeathtrip.com. You can also email me with questions or comments to Patrick at Medieval com. Uh, alternatively, you can talk to me via Twitter where I am at MDT Podcast. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so via Patreon at patreon.com slash MDT Podcast, or just by searching for Medieval Death Trip on Patreon. Our patrons get access to uh, little extra audio bonuses. Uh, it's been a little while since we've had a patron appendix episode, um, but I've got some ideas for a couple of those to come in the near future. I'd like to thank those of you who have become patrons since the last episode, Kelly and the reformed bust of linen. Uh, that's a single Patreon username uh, and a fantastic one. Also Joseph, Carol, Steve, El Centinatus, And Zoe, who actually, literally uh, became a patron while I was recording this episode. Again, thank you all. The support of my patrons not only helps pay for our software subscriptions and web hosting fees, but it's going to contribute a chunk to helping me replace my seven-year-old laptop at long last. Uh, It's been a great workhorse. I highly recommend Lenovo Thinkpads for any PC-using creators out there, uh, especially if you really care about a nice keyboard. Um, And this old laptop's still chugging along, but chugging is starting to become the operative word. So thank you again, patrons. You are going to immensely improve my production quality of life um, as soon as one of the good Lenovo summer sales rolls around. Uh, And I have not been compensated in any way for this plug. That's uninfluenced personal opinion, um, just so we're clear on that. And so, until next time, remember that you must ripen the swellings before you incise them, and God help you if you've consumed any olive oil in these miasmic days, and thanks for listening.